came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hey, Sonia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. You know, I've enjoyed immensely your cooking story last time. So I think everyone will need to know more what's happening. You know, we've been talking a bit about chores and housework. So how's mm. your engaging kids in housework going? It's contentious. <laughs> so we've tried all sorts of things, right? You know, participating in, in the house and taking responsibility to allowance. We use a system where the kids get their allowance paid onto a debit card that they have, which has been kind of cool. Wow. Yeah, so they are able to decide what they want to want to use their allowance on and everything. But the problem for me is finding the time to manage that and to be consistent with checking if they did what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And because it's much easier for me to put it on automatic allowance mm. right? without checking. And then they just like sometimes take the piss a bit. And then mm. the other tension for me is that I don't want them to be compelled based on the threat of losing allowance. Yeah to help because that's not really what I want to teach them about being part of a family or being yeah. in relationship to each other. I want them yeah. to learn that they're doing it because they care about me and Deborah and they care about their family. So yeah, oh, it's rough. So we tried different things and sometimes it works and other times you're like, okay, now I'm going to be authoritarian. <laughs> you won't do the right thing. I'm going to tell you what to do. You know, my best like story from how my mom tried to got, get me to do chores. I think for like months and months, probably she was asking me to wash up and I would be just like, nope, you know, because she would wash up. Right. And then one day I came back from school and there was like a pile of dirty dishes in the evening because I think she just refused to wash up and I refused to wash up. And I came back from school in the afternoon and there were no dirty dishes. And I was like, hmm, like, see, I won, right? I was a teenager. And I got into my bedroom and all the dirty dishes were on my bed. She just brought them and put them on my bed. Oh my God, it was so gross. But then I started washing up, so that worked. <laughs> anyway, so you know, how do we bring children up so they understand the idea of justice, right? Starting from the house chores. We don't have an answer for that, but we certainly can talk about justice in today's episode. I've been really enjoying our conversations that we've had so far. It's been great to talk through some of the ideas of solidarity and justice and violence and non-violence that often are pretty much ignored in disaster scholarship and practice. And one of the things that we've touched on but haven't really got a chance to unpack yet is environmental justice and disaster justice. So today is the day for that. And joining us is Professor Kim Fortune. Kim is a professor at the University of California, Irvine Department of Anthropology, and her research and teaching focus is on environmental risk and disaster and on experimental ethnographic methods and research design. She also helps organize the Disaster STS Research Network 
and co-edits with Scott Knowles a book series for University of Pennsylvania Press titled Critical Studies in Risk and Disaster. From September 2017 through August 2019, Kim served as president of the Society for Social Studies of Science, the International Scholarly Society representing the fields of science and technology studies. Kim is also one of the editors of the new Journal of Disaster Studies, which we're all very excited about. And so, yeah, big welcome to you, Kim. Thanks for joining us today. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So over the past few seasons of our podcast, Kim, we've really enjoyed learning how our guests got to study disasters. So I wanted to start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about your journey and why the interest in disasters and environmental risk. It's always a favorite question because I think it's so important to acknowledge and really celebrate and leverage different genealogies through mm -hmm. which people come to disaster studies because I think that's a strength of the field, not something to gloss over. Right. So I came to disaster studies really quite indirectly. I was in graduate school in the late 80s, early 1990s, which was a period a wash with interdisciplinary theory exchange. I was in a very theoretical anthropology program where, among other things, deconstruction was a core teaching. And so the title of your podcast series, Deconstructing Disaster, is quite apt and close to my heart. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've learned, which I'll come back to, I'm sure, is that we really do need very deep social theory, not only in disaster studies and disaster theory, but also in disaster practice. And so in that period, which was a time of articulated post-colonial studies, epistemology, race theory, what many of us were concerned about was getting outside of Western frames of understanding the world. So I went to do field work in India, really with that conceit, for lack of better terms, I wanted to chase it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I went to India planning to do a project on just the emerging people's environmental movement in India, which was coming more from the people's movement rather than the traditional conservation movement. And people talked about it as tigers versus tribals, like where was your solidarity? But when I arrived in India, the legal case for the 1984 Union Carbide chemical plant disaster in Bhopal was being heard by the Supreme Court. And so in the months after I arrived, a settlement was announced that was widely regarded as not supportive of victims. And so I then literally shifted my fieldwork to Bhopal and worked alongside community groups there in the three years between when this settlement was announced and when it was upheld three years later. So in large part, it was a story about environmental harms and disaster in the courts, like what can the courts apprehend and what can they not, you know, what courts can do at different scales. This was the Supreme Court of India. It had been denied jurisdiction in the U.S., which continues to have legacy effects on multinational corporate litigation today. Just quickly recount, it was an American-owned company making a pesticide that was promised to help bring food security and food independence to India. The plant was way overbuilt for the market, so it stored a lot of chemicals on site. Um, 
It was in a period of decommissioning at the time of disaster, which is we know from other industrial disasters, that period of transition is often very dangerous. And so workers were less skilled than they had been previously. Equipment hadn't been maintained. A lot of the safety systems weren't functional. And so on the early hours of December 3rd, a 40,000 ton cloud of toxic gas was released over a city that had preparation or evacuation plans in place. The death figures are still debated, but between five and 10,000 people were killed in the immediate aftermath. Hundreds of thousands were exposed and had livelihoods displaced and continuing health effects. And so it was clearly a disaster of historic portions. It's still often written about as the world's worst industrial disaster. And it did was what people talked about as a wake up call for industrial operations. It was the key driver behind environmental right to know legislation, first in the U.S. and then internationally. So, and I think this is really important for disaster scholars, when you have environmental right to know, and so you know about risk and potential harms, it really challenges the social contract. And so the way that risk data flows, I think, changed what we can fairly expect of governance. Mm. Nonetheless, despite being clearly a disaster, in my early research, I was really positioned as a globalization scholar. I wasn't trained in the tradition of Tony Oliver Smith, for example, that had studied disaster. Mm -hmm. And part of it was what harms is globalization producing? So in a funny way, it was disaster studies. <laughs> but it wasn't until years later, and I would really say around the time of Hurricane Katrina, that I really got called into conversations as a disaster scholar per se. And so it was a kind of windy road. At this point, I now think of myself as, you know, the old lady of disaster studies in some <laughs> senses, despite skipping that identity or leapfrogging it in my early career. I think this is fascinating. The journey that you've described to us, you know, your personal journey, but also the Bhopal disaster is exactly what disaster is, right? It's a process. Instead of looking at a hazard, which unfortunately many sort of interpret as a disaster event, I think through your research, you're really unpacking what disaster, what is the, manif the actual manifestation of disaster and how we still see the consequences of Bhopal now. But what I want to ask you next is your role in building networks and great building networks you know i've now kind of got to work with you a little bit and it's been just fantastic to see how you're bringing people together and of course you've been fundamental to building the disaster sts network and we will put the link in the show notes so what's interesting to me about disaster sts network is that it you guys are really linking people from around the world researchers from around the world and encouraging everyone to work together to understand, anticipate, and respond to disasters. And to me, this is a fantastic example of not just research collaboration, but research solidarity, where people are willing to share and are willing to work together instead of doing the normal research thing that this is mine and I'm just going to protect it, right? And nobody touch it. So could you tell us a little bit more about the network? You know, what purpose does it serve? How did it come about? And why do you care so much about research solidarity? It's a great question. And I think putting it in terms of solidarity as well as collaboration is really on point because I think my motivation to 
learning how to design collaborative projects and literally building the technical infrastructure to support it comes from my disaster work where I've just observed a really sobering and inexcusable lack of coordination among researchers across government agencies, across scales of governance, certainly transnationally. And it's like a circus that's naturalized. I mean, the idea that it happens repeatedly in disasters, that there's not adequate coordination. And so recognizing better collective capacity or the need for it as a key research finding, and then as an obligation to build that capacity in the research community. And that includes making space for people differently positioned in geopolitics, differently positioned with disciplinary knowledge. It's not one hazard that drives the system. It's a whole constellation of hazards, social, often geomorphic, certainly political, technical. And so we need to be able to coordinate to get at those crossing scales and systems in play. When I worked in Bhopal, I quickly figured out that I had to understand things like the piping configuration in a chemical plant. And I think many disaster scholars have to step up to that new kind of investigation that you far beyond your training, but it's also something you you can't do on your own. You actually need to collaborate with people in engineering and the health sciences. And so I think that I've recognized that through my research for a very long time, what pushed us over into establishing the disaster STS network was the Fukushima disaster. And in the aftermath of the Fukushima disaster, there were attempts to have discussion across region with bureaucrats at the table, historians of Japan, flood scholars, nuclear experts. And We convened a little workshop with U.S. National Foundation money that was at Berkeley. And frankly, I was ashamed at our inability to talk productively together. And it was no individual's fault. But, you know, some people got frustrated with other people because they didn't know enough about Japan. People got frustrated with Japanese literature people because they didn't get it. Law was always in play and disaster. And so feeling like we really need to ready ourselves to work together before things get really hot, so to speak. At the time, I'd already started building digital research infrastructure to support uh, collaborations among geographically distributed researchers. Mm -hmm. So we were able to adopt that technology. And ever since then, it's been a challenge of really figuring out what meaningful collaboration looks like how it should be governed. I mean, what should be the ethics of collaboration? And as you said, the willingness to not sequester ideas and data in a career building fashion in order to kind of create a research commons that we can think better together and more quickly. And we're still figuring out how to do that. There's still a painful lack of qualitative data in the public sphere or even research protocols, you know, interview frameworks, et cetera. So there is a lot of work to do. I think there's also a lot of work in actually being ready to be responsive to disasters as they unfold, which was 
something we committed to doing in the wake of Fukushima, as both of you know, it's infrastructure building. And there's a lot in our socialization as academics that encourage people to deflect that, to leave infrastructure building to somebody else. And, you know, a podcast series like this is also infrastructure. I mean, you're building the capacity of the research community. And so I applaud you for that. You've said one word that really resonates with what Jason and I have been discussing for a while, and that is obligation. I don't feel that as researchers, particularly in disaster scholarship, we actually talk about our personal obligations and our commitment perhaps to research, right? That goes beyond that, oh, I need to publish this paper because it's good for my promotion sort of thing, right? There is no obligation or there is no spoken obligation between us as researchers and between scholars around Mm -hmm. the world. How do we tackle that? Like, where where do we start that conversation about obligation? That's a good question. I do think that one of the effects, I mean, affective and practical on those of us that came through the post-colonial feminist kind of wave of scholarship that fortunately continues to cascade, mm-hmm. the way that the everyday actions are seen as political, that, in my view, sets us up for assuming that responsibility I also can say that many people trained in that genealogy don't see the politics in research data sharing and where they publishing. So it's not a linear connection at all. A kind of a rant that in order to be ethically sharp, you have to be empirically learned. And so I think there's a real skipping of the way that data sharing is you know, we know empirically it has a profound effect on what people know, who has standing in governance, who gets access to resources. But the idea that in turn implicates our own data practices, somehow there's a kind of gap. Something like open access scholarly publishing, which I see as as an imperative to respond to academic imperialism, Mm -hmm. the lack of coordination I referred to earlier, et cetera, I think is just not, is seen as some people's research topic rather than the context for research writ large. So some of it's a figure ground thing, even building infrastructure, you know, some people do that rather than it is the conditions of production for academic knowledge. But you asked me more critically how we <laughs> actually move the dial. There's a need to just call people to responsibility in this and to remind of the constitutive nature of scholarship in the making of the world. Because in a funny way, it discounts what we do and plays into really rampant intellectualism to suggest that it's just all about an individual scholar. Yeah, I think the way this conversation is going reminds me of our sixth season when we were talking a lot about methodologies. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Kim, but some of our listeners will be where we talked with a lot of early career folks who were really challenging the status quo ontology and epistemology in their departments and what that looked like and how challenging it is. So I wanted to come to ask you about power because a lot of your work has been bringing together like you said different people with different backgrounds different traditions different knowledges and I'm bringing them together as well with people from 
communities and activists. And the last couple of years, you know, Ksenia and I have been involved in the Disaster Studies Manifesto and the Accord and these collaborative efforts to talk about issues of power in disaster studies. So I wanted to ask you about power and imbalances of power that require us really to have a politics to collaboration. And so what? how do you think we can address this power imbalance between the different people that you've brought together in networks before? Do you have any strategies that have made that more successful? Well, there's a number of threads, I think, to what you point to. There's the power dynamics across disciplines and across generations among scholars. There's power dynamics between academic researchers and the communities that they work alongside. There's power dynamics weighted by legacies of imperialism. And that affects both of these kinds of connections. And I think that you can approach it in an academic way. I think that to pluralize the kind of positions and voices that we have participating in the production of academic knowledge, we're foolish not to, just in terms of conceptual richness. And so you could say that we need to make a place at the table and pathways there for scholars in the global South just to keep us from being dense. They bring in incredibly vitally different ways of thinking about things. And that's a little bit different than saying they deserve a place because it's unfair, which is also true. And I also think that the process of learning to listen across those differences unsettles our established methodologies. And so actually open space, not for just new content coming in, but fundamentally new frames and epistemologies that you mentioned. It's such a challenge to shift that around. In collaborating with the people that we study, but and also with the people responsible for systems of security and care, government agencies, that's a whole nother kind of collaboration that I think we really need to figure out. But in collaborating with communities, I've been fascinated and mostly really energized by the increasing commitment or increasing investment in community engaged research and the idea that we have something to learn from communities, which is certainly true. But I also think it's more complicated than that because so many communities don't know what risks they face or can even name the harms they're they're subject to, not because as of any fault of their own, but of systemically produced ignorance. And I use the term ignorance with hesitation, really to refer to the literature in the history, philosophy of science and STS on agnotology and just kind of produced ignorance. But the way that it takes collaboration and I think a responsibility of academics to do the research, to name and identify the drivers of harm in the communities we study. At the same time, I think that listening to what communities are concerned about and know about only challenges many established academic frames. And so figuring out how to do it both ways, I think is epistemologically robust. I also think that epistemic injustice is a really important part of disaster and environmental injustice. So just failing to recognize 
help people in the places that we work themselves experience and see those worlds itself is just an injustice. And I'll note that epistemic injustice includes a failure to listen and take into account those perspectives, but also a failure to give people access to the knowledge resources they need to make sense of the conditions that they're situated in. I do think there's an educational imperative that threads and links many of these things. I like that you pointed out the problem with fetishizing the local. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, like that's a very convenient simplification that can be co-opted and operationalized in a way that doesn't actually change anything and doesn't challenge anything. And it's the more complicated, nuanced approach to localization that we actually need, right? Yeah, I think that the romance of the local and even the community often is a sly way to that neoliberal end of telling communities that they're on their own, despite the global production of the harms at the local level. That brings us nicely to injustice, something that we don't talk enough about. I kind of hope that it is now accepted that we cannot really reduce disaster risk if we don't frame these risks in the discourse around injustice, right? And yet, when we look at the scholarship, justice as a narrative, justice as a kind of lens through which we look at disasters isn't prominent at all in disaster praxis. Why do you think that is? Why are we so uncomfortable about using the justice lens? And how do we actually move forward from this? You put the question well, because it actually prompted me to think about it in a little bit different way than I even usually do, which is I think part of the answer is that justice is often treated as this philosophical abstraction, which it is. And then you can easily say, well, that's the job of philosophers or development scholars or capabilities scholars. But I think that injustice is also an empirical phenomena that takes a sharp analytic eye. You know, so what produces disaster injustice? You know, it's procedural injustice, the lack of access to the law and legal standing. There's economic injustice. There's gender injustice. There's the injustices that result from failures to invest in infrastructure. And so to see it as, in a sense, injustice itself is a hazard. And so if you, and we've learned to detail hazards at the really kind of nano level. And so seeing disasters as kind of perfect storms, like a constellation of factors that that come together to produce system breakdowns, but that's akin to recognizing systemic racism, systemic economic stratification. So I think that if people can learn to see failures of justice built into the systems that we are habituated to focus on, analyze, see as subject to intervention. I mean, the nice thing about seeing injustice empirically is you can go after it. You can say, what would it take to give people access to law in this setting? What would it take to offset infrastructural injustice? What kinds of investments in 
sea walls, for example. And of course, it's not straightforward. What it means to secure infrastructure, of course, is both sincerely debated and insincerely debated. So it's not a straight path between identifying it and remedy. But I think seeing the vital connection between justice and empirics, justice and practice and practice might be a way to call more people into the shared work of reaching for justice. I really like how you phrased the shared work, that we're going back to kind of collaboration and really working together and recognizing, again, our interconnectedness in everything that we do, right, and the consequences of that. And as you were talking, you also made me think a lot about the politics of disasters. And I feel that it's equally uncomfortable subject in that disasters are very much treated as apolitical. And so justice is also sort of hovering there with this kind of apolitical notions, right, that we can just tweak a few things and it'll be all right, which of course it never is because everything is a part of this ideological context. What needs challenging? How do we work as researchers together that we actually challenge those harmful discourses that do not acknowledge politics of disasters, that do not acknowledge injustice in a way that we talk about disasters? Well, one way I think about it is that disaster researchers and practitioners that work really up close to disaster in the immediate aftermath, working to identify and remedy very direct causes of harm. You know, their work is urgently needed and we need Mm -hmm. them kind of on the job. But if you zoom out from the local level and say, what are the historical reasons that created the conditions for disaster? It's a lot harder to see it as a political. And I think that seeing it as methodologically necessary and robust to, to zoom out from the scene of harm, I think that argument can be made, again, epistemologically, and then it has ethical consequences. And one thing I'll note is that this way of thinking about it is relevant to many kinds and angles into disaster. And just as an example, a number of years ago at my old university, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, the students had a student-run ambulance, so an emergency first responder unit. And a colleague of mine, Allie Morgan, And I worked with her to offer a class for them on health and disaster was the name of it. But really the way that Allie structured the class was to say, what if you, what if you bring emergency responders into the work of saying, you know, what happens on a street corner that they respond to as the kind of scene of harm? What if you just habituate them with case after case to saying, okay, what is the proximate cause of the harm? What are two layers out causes of harm? You know, and so it was a really, it became a methods class that we Mm -hmm. wanted these first responders to take back into their houses and practices. And so I do think it's kind of lazy intellectually to not do that work, just to say, I've got my focus and I'm sticking to it. It means that you don't have to deal with the politics and justice. But I also think it's just weak epistemologically. I love that example. And 
What a good way to challenge some of the dominant ways of looking at disaster as event, mistaking hazard for disaster and misidentifying where the problem is. And I think that's a great way to wrap this conversation up. And we really appreciate your insights here and how you and your work that you're doing to bring people together. I hope it challenges our listeners, whether practitioner or scholar or somewhere in between to to think more deeply about their own politics of every day, how they engage and how they collaborate. So thanks so much for being with us, Kim. Can I ask the two of you a question? All right. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) So I've been mulling over this a lot, in part because of the way I teach. I teach a big environmental injustice class to young students, but also it's at the core of my research is in trying to get people across disciplines to recognize hazards beyond the conventional hazards, you know, the kind of direct technical driver of a system breakdown. Um, I usually treat things like social vulnerabilities, political alienation, poverty. I usually run it under the lingo of vulnerability rather than hazard. But I've started playing with the idea of like, maybe we should be calling all these things hazards because they are. And that would really muddy the established approaches. And that's kind of the point. But on the other hand, one of the things that you get with the kind of vulnerability language is there's a space for the sociocultural, you know, like the social determinants of health kind of lingo is done important work. I mean, not adequate, but important work. And so do you consider it all the social determinants of health, linguistic isolation as hazards or idiomatically, is it better to separate them? I mean, reaching for the kinds of things we've been talking about in this hour. This is super interesting. I mean, to me, I guess the further I go with my research, the less I'm concerned about the terminology and the concepts that we use. In that, you know, like you've just said now, everything is in the end. This kind of is about harm, right? Be that the manifestation of what we typically call the hazard. But also it's this whole kind of questioning, you know, when we talk about the natural hazards and I'm using quotation marks, I think we should think a little bit more about what is actually natural, right? Because the manifestation of natural is, of course, not natural. And so I think that makes the distinctions much easier to remove once we start arguing that actually everything is a social construct and this is how it is related to harm. But I'm also concerned in sort of overwhelming, not disaster kind of theorists in particular, in that, you know, the equation that we now use for disaster risk, which is hazard multiplied by vulnerability divided by capacity, right? It's neat. It explains a lot to people and it maybe encourages them to think a little bit more about, you know, what is the distinction between the hazard and vulnerability? And I'm worried that if we call everything kind of hazard, it just becomes too much and too confusing. But saying that also, Jason and I have been playing with some ideas. I'm sure Jason can tell you more a little bit about this, where we're just trying to put the concepts on its head. So we've been playing with vulnerability a lot. And instead of seeing vulnerability as weakness, as a harm, we are now arguing to embrace it as a potential, which of course ruins again the whole mnemonic equation right of disaster risk do you mean by seeing it as potential meaning it's a way to identify points of intervention i would say it's more about taking a step back from our understanding in disaster studies of vulnerability which is predominantly openness to weakness openness to harm 
And going back into feminist scholarship on vulnerability, which is just openness. And so there's openness to harm, but also openness to connection. And that can be a pathway to resistance, to resisting oppression through working together, recognizing our shared openness to the harm and fighting against it. And so that's where we're going with the vulnerability. The other thing I was thinking in relation to like framing vulnerability as hazard, definitely the harm, the harmful aspect of it. I tend to get scolded for this by reviewers for sure, but I tend to use the language of oppression, like oppression and violence to articulate that because vulnerability is very sanitized a lot mm. of the time. And it doesn't really identify that this is a violence that's being done to people rather than a natural condition. Right. Because um, yeah. a lot of time when vulnerability is used, it's like, oh, society is just unequal like this. It's unfortunate. We should feel pity about it, but what can you do? Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's important. I think that you're worrying over the same issues I am. And one example that prompted my thinking about this lately, that's a little bit outside the vulnerability matrix is in teaching environmental injustice, I felt the need to teach what ecofascism is mm-hmm. in part because we've got, you know, all these like mass shootings in the US where they're like writing these ecofascist manifestos to justify it. So I just felt like I didn't want to give a hallmark version of environmentalism and in the environmental movement. And so what is ecofascism? Like it's a hazard. Where would it go in the hazard vulnerabilities capabilities equation? And yet the kind of conservative political framework as hazard because it refuses the social contract, basically. So, I mean, that just is a kind of example, because these frameworks are so important for teaching. And once people get skilled with them, they get it. I think it also speaks to like an openness to different ways of, of seeing the world, different philosophical mm-hmm. positions, and just an understanding of difference. And so if some people will put forward a framework and say, I'm sticking to it 100%. <laughs> They're representing a certain philosophical position towards mm-hmm. scholarship. So I think even just saying my position to that is that I think destabilization of frameworks is good and yeah. using them as a learning tool, but showing their flaws mm-hmm. and that maybe where boundaries should not exist is a useful way to have a discourse. It shows that I have a different philosophical position right, than someone who just adopts a framework and sticks to it. Yeah, But I think that's where ideology comes to play as well, yeah. right? And we tend to keep our frameworks and our kind of classrooms almost objective, you know, in quotation marks. Yes. But of course, they never are, right? Because we bring mm-hmm. our own positionality, we bring our philosophy. But the person who engages with frameworks kind of also have reflection on that. But also on ecofascism, and we've spoken a few seasons back to a couple of colleagues of friends from out of Wood Collective, out of the Woods Collective. And they write fantastically about ecofascism and they're not at all disaster scholars. And that was perhaps the best articulated way of actually talking about disaster capitalism, ecofascism, but also disaster communism in the most eloquent and fantastically clear way. One last thing on this point is you mentioned in the way you introduced me, my kind of tagline of doing experimental methods. 
And what I have meant by experimental and refine my sense of is precisely this attunement to the world rather than sticking to established frameworks. And the idea that we need to be open to what the world asks of us. And also, I think multiplying frameworks is our best chance at getting not only epistemological robustness, but getting around just all the noise out there, the kind of corporate generated noise, the political denials. And so sticking to one framework walks you right into just into that. Mm -hmm. And so thinking of disaster scholarship as needing to be experimental with a particular urgency, given the kind of nature of its concern, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Epistemological experimentation. I like, I'm going to think about this. It's a new hashtag, epistemological <laughs> yeah, yeah. experimentation. I like that. Right. Well, thank you so much, Kim. This has been wonderful and it's always so nice chatting to you. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Kim Fortune, on Disasters Deconstructed podcast.